Um, last Sunday was a great Sunday, wasn't it? For those who yeah. are here. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, family time was a lot of fun. It was loud and rowdy and you guys seem to be enjoying talking and eating together and the kids playing and, and I survived your Q&A. Um, so that was good. There was one thing that I thought, man, I, I, that didn't come out quite right. I think it was Holden asked me about if I wasn't a pastor, what would I do? And I said I would probably be a professor because I love learning and teaching and I could teach anything. And then I was driving home. I'm like, did I say I can teach anything? Like, <laughs> that sounds astonishingly arrogant. Um, I can't teach anything. I just meant I can be happy teaching anything because um, that's just my personality. But my favorite thing, of course, is to teach God's word. Because I love seeing people empowered, and there's nothing more empowering than God's truth that sets us free. And um, so that's why I challenged you guys for Lent to ask someone to read about Jesus with you. And we have these little cards that have just a reading schedule and kind of lead you through that process, but just once a week. And several of you have done that, and I keep hearing these stories about, oh, I asked my coworker and I thought they'd never say yes, and they said yes. And there's this person who went to church when they're a little kid, but they never have been back, and they said yes, and, and all these kinds of things. So I just want to encourage you to keep asking, all right, and to follow through on that. You never know how God is going to work with you. And as we said, you do not have to teach scripture, it's just reading it. It's just reading it. And if people have questions, it's totally okay to say, I don't know. That's a good question. I think, um, hmm, how do I say this? I wasn't planning on saying this. Um, it, our faith is displayed when we can believe in Scripture and not have to be able to know how to explain everything. Does that make sense? Like, it, we don't need to take a defensive posture with God's Word. Like, it's, it, because Eric and I were planning on Monday nights to read with someone who I know is irreverent and going to poke holes in every little thing that he can. And, um, but we don't have to always be like, <gasps> you know, what does that show? That shows like, oh, a lack of faith. I think it shows significant faith and a witnessing faith when people say, well, what about this? And be like, yeah, I don't know. I'll ask God when he, I get to heaven. You know, do you see how that, that's an act of faith and that can be a witness to people. So don't feel like you have to explain everything. You just read God's word with people and let them read about Jesus for themselves and God's word will do everything it needs to do. But next Sunday, we're going to commission all those who are doing Bible reading with somebody for let and we'll call people forward and we'll pray over everyone. All right. So one more week still, there's lots of cards still up here. Um, that you can come and take and hand out to people and just say, hey, would you consider doing this with me? All right? So on that note, please turn it in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. Matthew 9, verse 1. This is not what I had planned on preaching this Sunday. Um, last Sunday we read from Matthew 8 where... Jesus healed someone with leprosy, and um, the man with leprosy had come to Jesus and said, Lord, if you're willing, make me clean. And Jesus said, I am willing. And that was kind of our prayer for that Sunday, is Lord, make us clean. 
And many people went to the back to be anointed with oil or to confess sins and be reassured of God's forgiveness for their sin. And it was a powerful service. But afterwards, I was, um, I just felt led that instead of moving on to a different prayer in Matthew, like I thought, that for the rest of February, we need to camp out on this prayer. Lord, make us clean. So that's going to be our prayer for this month, okay? And I'm going to ask you to every day pray that prayer. Lord, make us clean. And you're praying it for yourself, for your family, and for all of us. And by clean, we mean anything we need to be clean of. Whether that be physical ailments, or sin, or addiction, or depression, or whatever it is that we need to be free of. We're praying that God will make us clean. And... Um, I felt convicted about this because not just of those of you who are brave and came to the back, but also from the prayers that you guys have been putting in these prayer bowls for the past couple months, honestly. You know, um, we kind of latched on to the imagery in uh, Revelations that says our prayers are collected in bowls in heaven. And so many of you bring prayers up. There's papers in the baskets and pens. And if they're folded, I don't read them, but if they're unfolded, I I read and pray over them. And um, some of those prayers have been praises. Like someone anonymously wrote that they have been a month free of self-harm. Which is amazing, right? We give the Lord praise for that. Yes. Um, But others, there's just a lot of people struggling. A lot of people struggling with a lot of different things. And as I've been praying over them, I've been thinking, God, I can't carry this prayer burden by myself. We need to be praying for one another. All right? So that's why this month, I'm just going to ask you every day, Lord, make us clean. We're going to carry this prayer burden together. So you can write that on a post-it note. Um, There's some in the baskets there. You can program it into your phone. You know me, I tape it to my steering wheel (laughs) so that I remember every day to pray for it. But that's going to be our prayer for the month. Lord, make us clean. And we're going to continue to look at different miracles of Jesus in Matthew this month, okay? So, with that, Matthew 9, verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat and go home. Then the man got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and praised God, who had given authority to such a man. This story is also recorded in Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5. And um, they add a few more details, such as um, Jesus was in a house, and it was surrounded by a big crowd. And so the, the people who were carrying their paralyzed friend on a map, they couldn't get close to Jesus. So what did they do? 
They got on the roof, and Mark says they dug through the tiles of the roof so they could lower their friend down in front of Jesus. How desperate would you have to be to go to a stranger's home and dig a hole through the roof? And just think about that. They were desperate, weren't they? They were really desperate. Have you ever been that desperate to get that close to Jesus? Have you ever been that desperate in your life for anything? Why were they so desperate? I don't know. I can I can only imagine. I know back then there was no welfare. So if you were paralyzed, every day you were just laid in the street. Having a few issues here. Hold on. There we go. Um, you were just laid in the street and you begged, right? Can you imagine what that was like? Every day, just people walking by you, ignoring you, pretending like you're not there. You're just in the way. You're just a burden. You can't provide for yourself. Many people scorning you because they think your paralysis is a sign of God's judgment for your sin. Do you think this guy struggled with depression? Maybe feeling like God had abandoned him or rejected him for something? Yeah, he was desperate. Note that Jesus doesn't immediately heal him. He meets the man's first need. Despite the appearances, the man's first need is not physical healing. What is it? It's to be healed of his shame, right? To be healed of that shame and that depression and feeling alienated from God and everybody else. That's his first need. You see, shame, it paralyzes people. Shame will paralyze people. And I wanted to talk about shame for a minute because what I witnessed last Sunday, um, both through the people who came to the back and through the prayer bowls, is many people were confessing sin um, and receiving God's forgiveness. Other people were confessing things and felt shame about things that were not sin. Make no mistake about it. Our enemy weaponizes shame. He absolutely weaponizes shame. And there will be times he tries to make us feel shame about things when we haven't done anything wrong. The sense of false shame. And what that false shame does is that then it drives us away from God and we try to find relief from that false shame in the temporary pleasure of sin. And then that gives birth to real shame. And it becomes this cycle of needing relief from shame. And so we try to escape it in some sinful pleasure, which then bursts, what? More shame. So then we try to escape again. And it just becomes this cycle that we get stuck in and that paralyzes us. I want to show you this from Scripture. If you will turn to Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of your Bible. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 26. We're going to look at how God created Adam and Eve to actually be. And then um, 
will look at how Satan makes them feel shame for being exactly what God created them to be. Okay? So if we start in verse 26, um, it says, this is on the sixth day. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God said to them, be fruitful. Or I'm sorry, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. So what do we learn from this about how we are made? The first thing is we are made in God's, what? His image. It says in his likeness, right? I don't know if you guys are actually going to be able to read this, but. All right. What else? Um, we're made to rule, right? Over creatures and land. No, it does not say over other humans. That says something, huh? Um, what else? Oh, we're to be fruitful. That means we're supposed to produce things that are beneficial and good, right? We're to multiply. I think there's a few ways we can multiply by having children or adopting or fostering and also by multiplying other believers in, in Christ. Um, what else we got here? We're blessed. God blessed them. Um, if you keep reading, he gives us vegetables to eat fruits and vegetables. So, yeah. It's not until after um, no, the flood that we're given animals as food. Fun fact. Okay, let's keep going. Um, at the end of the sixth day, what does he say? It is good, very good. Yeah. So we're created very good. Um, and then... In chapter 2, the beginning, it says the seventh day, God finished his work, and so he rested. And therefore, Adam and Eve rested with him. And being made in the image of God means we work six days, and then we rest one. All right, let's... um, And then the rest of two kind of talks about the garden. Let's go to verse... 15, chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are to, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I'm sorry, alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. 
I want to pause there and just talk to everyone who has struggled with loneliness, all right? How many of you have had a well-meaning Christian, if you struggle with being alone, tell you, well, you know, you just need to invest in your relationship with God because he supplies all your needs and he is your companion and the Lord will provide the intimacy you need. Have you? Has anyone heard a line like that? Is that what God says to Adam? I tell you what, God is often way, not often, he is always way more practical and compassionate than we are. He doesn't look at Adam, who's like all by himself, and say, Hey, you know, you got me. We can walk and talk in the garden together anytime you want. That's not what he says. What does God do? He created Eve. He does something else first. All right, verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. How long do you think that took? A little bit of time? Yeah, this is, this is interesting. Because we know Adam and Eve were both made on the sixth day, right? And so some will say Adam is like made in the morning and then God brings all the animals and he names them all. And then God makes Eve. Possible. I think we we need to consider um, what Genesis 1 says about the length of a day then, okay? So, so this is a little tangent, but we know Genesis chapter 1, that account is a poem. All biblical scholars agree on that. Some will say it's a metaphorical poem. Some will say it's a literal poem, like everything in the poem happens just the way it happened. Even if you fall in that literal camp, which I, I do, um, but I understand there's other ways to interpret it, um, you still have to think, what is meant by the Hebrew word yom, day there? And I always assumed that it meant a 24-hour period. Until one day I was reading the account, and I saw that God invents time on day four. I don't know how I missed that for like half my life, but um, some of you will remember from science, the equation for time, time equals distance divided by speed. And I remember I had all these story problems in middle school about trains leaving at different times. And Anyways, like I've ever had to catch a train schedule. But um, yes, time equals distance divided by speed. And on the fourth day, God makes a sun, moon, and stars. He puts them at different distances from each other, moves them at different speeds, and boom, time is born. And um, it says he, he creates seasons, years, and days. God is eternal. He exists outside of time. Time was something he created on the fourth day. So if the 24-hour day wasn't created until the fourth day of creation, it's possible that the days of creation might refer to stages or ages 
like we'll say like, you know, back in the day of King Richard the Lionheart or back in my day, you know, that, that kind of day. All right. So if you consider that each of the days of creation might have been a stage of creation, how long do you think it took Adam to name all the animals? How long would it take you? I think we have this um, false perception that God just kind of overrode the personality of each animal and caused them to go in a single file line and, and Adam just rattled off these names. I don't think that's consistent with scripture. Like, when does God override personalities? I think Adam probably... You know, every morning he woke up was a new adventure and he'd encounter some animal and he, he would get to know it and like, ooh, this one has sharp teeth or this one's really fast or, you know, and he got to know them and would choose a name for them. My point is, I think it's possible Adam was a single person for a very long time. And I don't think he woke up every morning in despair. I think he woke up every morning enjoying the blessings of God's creation. When God sends us help, it's, um, it's always good and beneficial help. It always makes a difference. It may not entirely resolve the whole problem immediately, but it does help. And science will back us up on this. What are the benefits of pets? Reduce stress, reduce anxiety, depression, reduce PTSD symptoms. That's no small help. Lower blood cholesterol and blood pressure, lower triglyceride levels. This is just a short list. God's help is no small help. So we learn pets help. <laughs> All right? Some of us has, have rejected that. And God, there's help out there for us, and we need to, to take it. Okay, humans help more. That's the next point, right? Some of you might debate that. Humans help more, but humans also bring more headaches. Which Genesis will play out that way as well. Okay, so the next thing. I think Adam is enjoying life, but God knows it could get better. So, um, verse 21. So the Lord God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had brought out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So we have also here, I totally ran out of room, um, husband... And wife equals one. There's unity. There's no dominance in the Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 account. The word there for helper doesn't mean underling. 
It's the same word that is used, the Bible repeatedly uses for God as our helper. It actually means a rescuing kind of help. And there are lots of stories, this is just the first, of women rescuing men in the Bible. So, um, but they're equal. She's taken from the side, right? And he says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And they are united to be one. What else? It says the last thing is they have no shame. There's no shame. They were naked. They could fully see and know one another and have no shame. And that's the last thing God's word says about them until who shows up? Satan. All right. Next verse, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, that God, for God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. All right. Every temptation you have ever felt is wrapped up and birthed from those words. Every single one. Let's break these down. The first one, Jen, um, I think we have a slide for it. He said to the woman, did God really say? The first thing he, Satan tries to do is get us, uh, that's not the right letter, doubt God's word. Did God really say? We'll start to doubt, well, did, God, did God's word say that? Or like maybe that applied then, but it doesn't apply to my situation. Or maybe I misunderstood it, but he be, gets us to begin to doubt God's word. The second thing, you must not eat from any tree in the garden. He exaggerates. Am I spelling this right? Um, what God withholds. Is there two H's? Just, I don't know. All right. Okay, he exaggerates what God withholds. Do you see how he does that? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree? No, God said you could eat from every tree, for crying out loud, except one. But he will shift our focus from all the blessings that God has given us to the one thing we don't have. And make it seem like that one thing is everything. And we need that one thing to be happy, right? Do you see how absurd that is? Like if all the blessings God has given you do not make you happy, that one thing is not going to make you happy either. It's not. And we do this with all kinds of things, whether it be that perfect job or that car or that home or the spouse, you know, so that's a huge miss that if we just have the perfect boyfriend or girlfriend or husband and wife, then we'll be happy. 
Ah, let me tell you, people who are miserable before they're married are miserable after they're married. And then they think it's because they married the wrong person. No. The problem is not what you have or you do not have. The problem is not appreciating all that God has given you and counting your blessings. And Satan will try to do this over and over again to turn you from the generosity of God. God had given them every tree. And exaggerate the one thing that God has not given you and make you feel like that's everything. All right, what else does he do? Uh, Okay, Genesis 3, 4. Can we get that verse? You will not certainly die. He lies that the long-term effects of sin won't happen. Did they immediately die? No, not physically. Relationally, they did. But physically, they didn't. I don't want to say this. He will convince you that just because the effects of sin are delayed, they won't come. What's our next verse? Verse 3, verse 5. I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 5. For God knows that when you eat from it. See, and do you see how he's brought them to this and now he's turning them to the short-term pleasure of sin to find fulfillment. He knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And that's the shame. That they are not enough. What does God's word say? Do you see how devious this is? They are already what? They are already like God. He makes them feel shame for being exactly who God created them to be. And makes them feel like somehow they're not enough. And this is how false shame in us always gets birth. That we are convinced that somehow we are not good enough. Even though God says we're made in his likeness, we are blessed, we are very good. And this false sense of shame will drive us from God to find some relief in a pleasure of sin. Which then gives birth to real shame. And then we just get in this cycle of shame and escaping the pain of shame to more sin and then escaping the pain of that shame. And it just becomes this this vicious cycle. And it happens all different ways. All different ways. You can feel like... How how do I want to put this? It always starts with feeling like we need to be like God. And you may not consciously think that, but that's what what's happening. You start to feel bad like you don't know enough. Or you're not you can't produce enough. You're not successful enough. Maybe like for for women, sometimes men. We have to provide all our family's needs. Yeah, you're not the God who can provide all your family's needs, but somehow we feel like we need to. And so we drive ourselves to this. 
right? And we can exhaust ourselves trying to provide for all of our family's needs, especially if we had someone who's sick or whatnot in our family. And then we, even though we're made to work six and rest one, we exhaust ourselves. And then what happens? Our families begin to feel like a burden. And we start to pull away. And then what do, we feel guilt. We feel guilt for taking a break from our families. And so that drives us to try harder. And we just get stuck in this cycle. Sometimes we do it because we, we think we're not good enough. So we have to work really hard to succeed. And we get stuck in a cycle of workaholism. Where we work really hard to succeed and it feels good. But then we feel shame because we know we're falling away from our families. And that pain drives us back to work where we get the pats on the back. But then we feel more shame about how our personal life is falling apart. And so we go back to work and we just get stuck in this cycle. Sometimes we do that cycle but we're not successful. And so what happens? Then we get lazy. We have a fear of failure. And so we pour our time into something that we can succeed at, whether it's video games or, you know, getting likes on social media or whatever it is. Or alcohol. I mean, this is how all addictions are born. Some are socially acceptable and some aren't, but they're, it's all the same thing. It's a a pattern of shame. It's an escape from shame. Shame and escape from shame. And the only way to break out of it is not to confess the escape. That's what we do. We think we need to repent of escaping, whether that be through alcohol or, you know, being lazy or or whatever this escape is. No, the thing we need to repent of is believing Satan's word over God's word. That's what's at the root of it. And we need to identify what lie we have believed and where that shame is, where we are trying to be God when we were never meant to be God. And we have to confess that and replace it with God's word. And that's why counselors, Christian counselors, will always try to get back to, okay, what is a lie? And then what does God's word say? And then you memorize that. And you implant that in your heart. And then you have to replace the escape with something healthy. That's that's the other part of it. In Ephesians it says um, that he who steals must steal no longer, but must work with his hands so that he can give generously to others. You can't just stop the escape. You have to replace it with an edifying behavior and action that will drive you to God. Do you get this? A good counselor can really help you break this down. I don't know if you struggled with feeling that you're not good enough. But I want to assure you of God's word. All right? That you are created in his likeness. You are creative to be pro- created to be productive and produce good things. And you are blessed and God loves the way he made you. God loves your limitations. We hate our limitations. We hate that we don't always have enough strength. 
We hate that we don't know everything. A couple years ago, I, I'm a fidgeter, and I was fidgeting with a magnet on my laptop when I was in a class for my doctorate. Wiped my whole computer. Let me tell you, that was not an inexpensive fix. That was very expensive. That was three years of doctoral work that we had to pay a lot of money for God to raise from the dead. I beat myself up so much for that. We do that kind of stuff to ourselves all the time. We just think we should know better. We beat ourselves up when we plan things and we don't get the outcomes we think we should get. Or when we're in the wrong place or at the wrong time or something happens to our child as if we could control anything. Look, you're not God. God likes your limitations. It's what keeps you from being God. But being a human made in his image is a very good thing. And we need to reclaim that. I want to end with the words of Jesus back at our original story in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9 verse 2 says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, take courage, for your sins are forgiven. Jesus heals the shame first, and then he heals the physical need. It happened in the story we read last week, too, with the leper, where Jesus touches the leper. He breaks through the isolation and the shame, and then he takes care of the physical need. He also acts upon the faith of friends. Did you catch that? It says, when Jesus saw their faith, it wasn't only desperation, it was faith that drove them to tear up those tiles on a stranger's roof. And he acted upon that. And if we can just be honest, when someone is stuck in a shame and escape cycle, and they've been stuck in that a long time, They need the faith of friends to carry them to Jesus. And that's why I'm asking all of us, we're going to pray, Lord, make us clean this month, every day. Because there's some people who need to be carried to Jesus, and they can't get there on their own. The praise team is going to come and lead us in worship. And um, there's there's many ways you can respond. You can respond by singing. You can respond by bringing prayers up. Um, but I'm going to be in the back again, just like I was last week. Um, and there's some tables and a stand that have these little cards. Um, and this is because I don't hear well, especially when there's music playing. Um, but also sometimes I think it's easier for people to write things than say them. So it just has your name. What do you want prayer for? It, It could be anything. Okay that you want to be anointed and receive prayer for. Um, May we lay hands on you. Yes or no. It's okay to put no. Um, And then if there is a sin, that's an if. We're not assuming there is, okay? But if there's a sin that has been weighing on your heart and shame and you need to confess it, you can write it down. And, um, And I'll just anoint you and look you in the eyes and say your sins are forgiven. Sometimes we need people to be Jesus with skin on 
and declare that over us to help break that cycle. Last Sunday, I didn't know what to do with them, so I just like tore them up and they made a big mess back there, which Todd was awesome at cleaning up. Um, but this time, I have got a bowl and we're going to burn them afterwards, okay? So praise team, if you will come, and I'm going to pray. Lord, I thank you that you created us in your likeness. With just enough limitations that that we don't have to bear the weight of everything that you bear. God, I pray that you help us to love our limitations like you do. And to live within and find joy within those limitations. God, I pray that you turn our eyes to see every good blessing that you have given us. And for our hearts to overflow with gratitude and joy because of it, God. And when we've been obsessed with that one thing, God, we just confess that to you. We're sorry. For focusing on what you do not give us. God, we're sorry and we repent of it. And we ask that you cleanse us. And refocus our eyes on everything good you are doing. Give us courage to confess our sins and be free of shame. God, I just pray that you open the eyes of our heart. And speak to us through your spirit to know where the shame comes from. What is that first lie that we believed so that we may confess it and be rid of it? And I pray your truth will just pour into us and take over our minds and our souls and our bodies that we may live freely in your truth, God. And God, help us, remind us, empower us to carry one another to you. Let us be a people that carries our friends and family, our neighbors, our co-workers to Jesus, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.